Arsenal are in an odd position. Under manager Mikel Arteta, they are FA Cup winners. They're equipped with young, promising players like Bakayo Saka, Gabriel Martinelli and William Saliba. They've also recently beaten Liverpool, Manchester City and Chelsea and Arteta has got the better of Pep Guardiola and Jurgen Klopp in one-off games. Yet the club remains shackled to its past. American billionaire Stan Kroenke, who incidentally is married to one of the heirs of the Walmart fortune, is the club's sole owner, with son Josh now more involved in the day-to-day. -day. Supporters have criticised the club as commercially stagnant, as having an arcane structure and of just not doing enough. And herein lies a strange contrast. Supporters are generally enthusiastic about the progressive, modern and ambitious Arteta, but largely dead against the perceived absent American ownership. On top of this, the hierarchy between coach and owner has also at times seemed problematic. The legacy of now-departed head of football Raul Sanyehi is the alienation of the club's scouting and analytics departments in favour of an agent-led approach to transfers. So, where does this leave the club? Well, in today's episode, we're joined by David Ornstein, Amy Lawrence, James McNicholas and Matt Slater to dig into Arsenal's recruitment, ownership, academy, tactics and finances. But most importantly, the manager. Who is Mikel Arteta? What is his managerial DNA? Why did Pep Guardiola choose him as an assistant? Answer this and we can better understand the Arsenal of the future. Welcome to State of the Club. Nobody thought that Mikel Arteta would ever become a footballer. Born in March 1982 in San Sebastian, as a baby he was diagnosed with a serious heart condition which required surgery, and doctors would tell his parents that their son would never play any sport. But he would come to love football, and at age 5, those doctors agreed to merely monitor his condition. And play he did, most often on the beaches near his home in Calle Matia with a local boy who would grow up to win everything the sport had to offer. Xabi Alonso was five months older than Arteta, but the two became inseparable, honing their touch and technique on the beach. At nine, they would even play alongside one another for Antiguoco, a feeder club for Real Sociedad. But at 15, Arteta had the chance to join the team he'd supported as a boy. Moving to Barcelona may have seemed too good to be true for Arteta, but it was no surprise to those who'd watched him develop. He was one of the smallest players, remembers Antiguaco teammate Alvaro Parra, but no doubt the smartest. Barcelona brought him first contact with Pep Guardiola, his idol as a player and, many decades later, his coaching mentor. 
Arteta would make his debut appearance for Barca's B-team as a substitute for Guardiola, but first-team chances were limited for teenagers, and in 2001, with Philippe Cocu, Xavi and Fabio Rockenbach blocking out the light, he joined Paris Saint-Germain on loan. At the time, PSG were under the guidance of Luis Fernandez, a European Championship winner with France in 1984 and one of the finer defensive midfielders of his generation. The club was very different to the one standing in its place today, but it was still one of Europe's most cosmopolitan environments. Fernandez was managing a group which included Maurizio Pochettino and Gabriel Anza, the swaggering flair of JJ Acocha and Ronaldinho, and the combustible talent of Nicolas Anelka. It was an intimidating dressing room, particularly for a 19-year-old, but he survived and grew. Pochettino took Arteta under his wing, and the two retain a friendship which survives to this day. But those early years as a player were semi-nomadic. Arteta's loan in Paris would become a permanent move to Rangers. He would then swap Glasgow for a return to San Sebastian before leaving for England and Everton. First on loan, and then for good. So, before Arsenal and the Emirates, there were changes in style and culture to navigate, with languages to learn and communication skills to develop. It was a time of near-constant change. But the anecdotes are familiar and consistent and are indicative of the kind of personality that today, nearly 20 years later, is exerting itself at Arsenal. At Ibrox, Ronald de Boer was struck by the presence of a young player who should have been well outside his comfort zone. I think he was just coming up for 20 at that time, but he played with the maturity and tactical discipline of a 30-year-old, de Boer recalled. You can never be certain, but I did get a feeling, even back then, when he was so young that he had a desire to get into coaching. From one hothouse footballing city to another, via San Sebastian, Arteta would make his name in Liverpool with Everton, and again, show many of the characteristics present today. Alan Stubbs, the former centre-half, remembers Arteta as strong-minded and willing to speak up if he felt something needed to be said. Phil Neville, who spent time in the presence of some of the strongest characters English football has ever known, also observed a rare gravitas in his teammate. People listen to him and respect him. He has that aura. Through Arteta's own recollections, he was an unusually driven player too. In 2009, while in recovery from a cruciate ligament injury, his wife Lorena was pregnant with their first child. Labour was no reason to miss rehab though. Three or four hours after my wife gave birth, he told Arsenal's official website in 2014, I pulled up a treatment table next to her in the hospital and had my physio. She wanted to kill me. But he would play again, returning with some of the best football of his career. He arrived at Arsenal in 2011 as part of Arsene Wenger's response to a dreadful 8-2 defeat to Manchester United. Wenger would eventually make him his captain and, like others beforehand, placed great stock in his character and the example it set. Mikel has a huge influence even when he's not playing, Wenger commented at the time. He is super conscientious and every morning two hours before training he prepares and that is absolutely right. Just through his behaviour, his focus is on getting everything right in the team. Like many of his peers, Arteta laid the groundwork for his coaching career while he was still playing. As part of his qualifications, he coached Arsenal's under-13s at Hale End during a lengthy injury layoff in 2015, and later in the year, for his A licence, he would coach Wales under-16s through the Victory Shield tournament. And by that time, some semblance of philosophy had started to crystallise too. He already seemed to know what kind of head coach he would be. I will have everyone 120% committed, that's the first thing, he said in a 2014 interview. If not, you don't play for me. It was said lightheartedly and with a smile, but, as Matteo Genduzzi might attest, 
he meant every word. And he also knew how his teams would play. I want the football to be expressive, entertaining. I cannot have a concept of football where everything is based on the opposition. We have to dictate the game, we have to be the ones taking the initiative, and we have to entertain the people coming to watch us. The people aren't there yet and may not be for a while, but the substance is appearing, and Arsenal have already begun to twine around their head coach. Mikel Arteta has now been at Arsenal since December 2019. Uh, his first game was a fixture against Bournemouth. In that, he used a 4-2-3-1, which he then used for the next 10 fixtures. After that, he switched to a 3-4-3 before reverting to a 4-2-3-1 for the final game against Watford. Now, in the first two games of this season, he's used a 3-4-3 in both the Community Shield and also the fixture against Fulham. But what does this tell us about how Arteta is trying to play and what can we infer from what Arsenal will do this coming season? Mikel Arteta has clearly been influenced by his time with Pep Guardiola. He was assistant manager to Guardiola at Manchester City. Pep Guardiola is famous for something called positional play and it's clear that Arteta is trying to institute this at Arsenal as well. But what is positional play? Positional play is a, a fairly complicated series of ideas, but it can be boiled down into a few key facets which are helpful for understanding what Arteta is trying to do at Arsenal. So the first is the idea of generating superiorities behind opposition lines of defence. Now, these, uh, these superiorities can either be quantitative, which is where you have more players in a particular part of the pitch than the opposition, or they can be qualitative, which is where you have a particularly good player isolating an opposition player and running at him or going in behind him. There are a few other key important points to positional play as well. So these superiorities that we're talking about are generated with a series of rehearsed movements, patterns of play. This is why Pep Guardiola, for example, trains his players using a rondo. It's about quick, rehearsed interchanges of passing. There's a few other key points as well. So, for example, one of the things that uh, is important for positional play is the idea of the third man. So what happens there is you, you'll have a player moving into this position here, and then one of these players will be the third man. These two players here can pass the ball between each other, but there's always a third man here who's spare. This is why we talk a lot about the creation of passing triangles within these superiorities. The other thing that's important is what we call the switch of play. So if uh, the team here in red is stacking up on the right-hand side and trying to generate superiorities in this area, naturally the team in yellow is going to come across so what we then find is that these players out here on the left hand side are in considerable space and number 11 here has gained what's possibly a qualitative superiority over number two you can then have a series of quick passes like that and then number 11 can attack number two one of the things that's really important about positional play and it's why we've got this grid drawn here on the screen, is that when it's trained, players are taught to occupy certain zones. The idea is that no two players should occupy the same vertical line. So 
that's okay because four and six are on the same vertical line, but 10 is tucked inside. But if 10 moves there, that's too easy to shut off the passing lane like that. Also, no more than three players should occupy the same vertical line. So again, that's fine. But if seven were to drop in there, you'd have too many players on that line. And again, that makes it easy to mark. Now these movements on these lines and players being aware of where they are in relation to, to those markings on a training pitch, which is incidentally why players are always looking around themselves, trying to work out where they are oriented towards the space, towards the ball, towards their teammates, is what makes positional play work on the basis of rehearsed movements. So teams will learn in these series of rehearsed movements, if the ball goes here, this is where I need to move, this is where my teammate's going to move. And you see this very, very slick series of interchange passes, which is all based on this rehearsed idea. Now, there are a couple of different types of positional play. The Pep Guardiola style is, is predicated on what we call verticality. So that's moving the ball quickly up the pitch. You might have a manager like uh, Louis van Gaal, for example, who does it more horizontally. That's more about moving the ball sort of backwards and forwards in a kind of pendulum way. But the aim is the same. It's to get superiorities behind the opposition lines and then be able to affect an attack. Uh, pressing is part of this as well, because pressing is, is a way that teams then shore up what's happening behind the ball. So how does this positional play influence what Arteta is trying to do at Arsenal? Arteta's 4-2-3-1 was perhaps slightly reminiscent of what Guardiola does with his 4-3-3, although it was less effective in execution. Again, the principles are to try and generate these overloads. So what would quite often happen is the 4-2-3-1 would morph into a sort of 2-3-5 in possession. So the fullbacks here would give as much width as possible. The wide left player, generally speaking, Aubameyang, would be out there wide left. The number seven, again, probably Nicolas Pepe, would stay wide on this side. And then you'd have the number 10 drifting into the right half space. One of these central midfielders, usually someone like Ceballos, would be pushing up. This was flexible, so occasionally, for example, Aubameyang would occupy this left half space so that he could make a run in here, and the width would come from the left back. But the general principle was to have five players here up front, a shield of three players providing defensive cover, the ability to counter-press, and then two defenders that would sort of lurk in this area. There's a couple of other things that are worth noting uh, about the 4-2-3-1. So part of the build-up play, for example, would sometimes see the left back pushing really, really high, and then Granite Xhaka would drop here into the left back spot, and he'd be able to play these long passes forwards. Um, that was part of how Arsenal would build up from the back. But by and large, there was a fairly straightforward approach. It was, it was about trying to get a lot of men forward, width coming from the fullbacks, long passes coming from deep, uh, and having enough superiority in the forward spaces to be able to try and affect goal opportunities. So how is what Arteta is now doing with a 3-4-3 different to that? 
Well, actually, in several respects, it's not that different. Um, the first thing to say is that formations are kind of nominal sometimes. So a 3-4-3 quite often won't look like a 3-4-3 during lots of facets of the game. That's kind of the same with most formations. When Arsenal are in a low block, you do see the wing-backs dropping back, the wide players also dropping back, and you get this structure of a, a five-man back line, four midfielders, and then Lacazette on his own, moving around, trying to press a little bit. That's where it's closest to being a 3-4-3. But in lots of other respects, Arteta is actually doing some fairly similar things to what he was doing before. He's just doing them more effectively because the personnel that he's able so far to squeeze into the 3-4-3 is performing better. So on the left-hand side, the left wing back, Ainsley Maitland-Niles, who's a really interesting utility player who can fulfill a number of different functions, has tended to sit quite narrow inside. What this means is that Kieran Tierney, who has played obviously regularly as a left back, can push really, really high and wide on the left-hand side. So he's acting as a left-sided centre-back, but he's also acting as a left wing-back. Maitland-Niles will largely occupy this space. Tierney will overlap up here. But sometimes if Tierney cuts inside, Maitland-Niles will go outside. Aubameyang is then able to come inside, knowing that there's going to be at least probably one player outside him, but also one player behind him. We have the passing triangles that are so beloved of positional play. There, I actually managed to do it in that instance. On the right-hand side, if we return these players to where they should roughly be, William acts much more like a 10 rather than a classic outside right-sided attacker. So he drifts into this space here. Bayerin will provide the width on the right-hand side getting forwards. However, Bayerin will also cut inside with William staying outside. What that means again is that you have, again, the creation of these overloads, passing triangles. So with Bayerin making runs inside or outside, William drifting inside or outside, depending on where Bayerin is, what that means is, again, you have the opportunity to, to generate these overloads. What this often looks like when Arsenal are in attack is five players forwards, three players in the middle, and two at the back, much like we saw with the 4-2-3-1. So Maitland-Niles will be in here. You have these midfielders. Tierney's providing width on the left. Behrens providing width on the right. Aubameyang and Willian are drifting inside. Again, this is creating overloads, creating numerical superiority behind the opposition line of defence. But while they're doing that, there is the midfield cover here, the screen of the three players. Now, what's interesting is that Arsenal are trying to push those players a little bit higher up the pitch now. That's partly facilitated by the fact that Gabriel is a really good one-on-one -on -one defender. I think we'll probably see that more uh, when William Saliba comes into the team as well, because that's the strength of his with his pace and his covering ability. Leno is obviously a good sweeper-keeper, so he can come and patrol this area. If Arsenal press high up the pitch, 
and when I say press, I don't mean engage in a press, I just mean push up so that they're squeezing the opposition space. That allows them to counter press around the edge of the box. If the move breaks down with those flies, five players up front, you've still got three behind them to keep everything secure. And also perhaps arguably lacking a really, really high quality playmaker, Arsenal can use the counter press to, to generate additional opportunities to attack the opposition box. Now, one of the interesting things about the use of the 3-4-3 last season is that it was generally felt that because Arsenal, maybe Granit Xhaka aside, lacked a really high-quality progressor of the ball from deep, David Luiz was, was the crucial guy. He was in the centre of that back three, and he was able to make these long, raking passes forwards or sometimes bring the ball actually out into the midfield area and then generate these vertical passes forwards. But it was felt that Luis was probably unable to defend properly in a four-man back line. He was kind of exposed by that. Luis is injured and hasn't been part of the squad so far this season. But what we can see with Arsenal is that they've turned the 3-4-3 into something that plays to their strengths and crucially plays to the way that Arteta wants to play football rather than something that they build around one particular player to minimise their weaknesses in other areas of the game. I think that's what's really interesting about Arteta. He came into uh, the role having given an interview to the Arsenal magazine in, in 2016 where he talked about wanting to play expressive football, wanting to play football that dictated to the opposition what was happening, but also he emphasised flexibility. He emphasised the idea that you know, players in the squad have to be able to take risks, they have to be technically capable and, and if the players aren't able to do that or if you don't have those players then you have to adapt to that. What we've seen before with Arteta is this adaptation to, to use what Luis is good at but protect him and now we're seeing the same formation used but rather to emphasise Arsenal's strengths. So Arteta is sticking true to his word, he's adapting, he's playing expressive football and I think it probably bodes really well for Arsenal in this coming season. I'm David Ornstein, football correspondent for The Athletic. When Ivan Gazidis was chief executive at the club, he wanted to create a continental model. And that would involve a number of heads of department, um, whether it be head of recruitment, head of football, head coach, head of high performance. And he implemented it. A number of individuals came on board, the likes of Darren Burgess on high performance, Rao Sanlehi as head of football relations, later head of football, Sven Mislantat as head of recruitment, Hus Fami as head of contracts. The only thing remaining was the head coach role and Arsene Wenger was replaced with head coach Unai Emery. That seemed to be the model that Arsenal would go forward in. However, Ivan Gazidis left. Soon after, Sven Mislintat was gone. Darren Burgess left. And now Arsenal are in a position where Raul Sanlehi has gone too. People have come in in the meantime, Edu as technical director. And so that continued this sort of continental model. But with the departure of Raul Sanlehi, things are looking very different at Arsenal. At the top of the organisation now is the man who he shared the leadership with, Vinay Venkatesham. He has gone from 
Managing Director to newly appointed Chief Executive. Raoul Lehi has not been replaced. It was clearly an aim of Arsenal's owner, Stan Kroenke, his son Josh, who's a director at the club, KSE, Kroenke Sports and Entertainment, who are the overarching organisation in charge of this, to create a leaner, more efficient Arsenal. Um, many of the redundancies that were made, we were told that they needed to be made regardless of COVID and that this had kind of escalated the process. Arsenal want to become a more streamlined organisation, more fit for purpose in not only the COVID but also the modern era. That means the hierarchy of the club looks very different to how it looked not so long ago. Player recruitment at Arsenal has undergone enormous change in recent times. If we take the story back, Ivan Gazidis was chief executive, was very keen to embrace data, statistics, numbers, analytics, and Arsenal acquired the American company StatDNA and their boss Jason Rosenfeld. That became a really important part of Arsenal's decision-making process around potential signings. It culminated in the arrival of Sven Mislintat as head of recruitment from Borussia Dortmund, because he is a real disciple, a believer in the numbers, the data, the analytics. Um, but that sort of thing was always likely to create a bit of tension within any club because there will always be people of a more traditional, old-school mentality. And there was certainly tension between Sven Mislintat and Raul Sanlehi, who, after the departure of Ivan Gazidis, were the two guys basically responsible for the recruitment. Sven Mislintat left and Raul Sanlehi uh, was in position to take things forward. Now it was Arsenal's aim to appoint a technical director who would be ultimately responsible for recruitment. Uh, they considered a number of options including Monchi. Uh, he had recently left Roma. He's renowned throughout the game as one of the best operators but he decided to go back to Sevilla. Arsenal turned their attentions to Edu, their former player and in invincible. He had experience at the Brazilian FA but also Corinthians, just not in a European club or in the European transfer market. So as he gradually integrated, Raul Sanlehi was left to lead this forward in conjunction with Arsenal's recruitment department. And Raul Sanlehi favours a more contacts-based approach, relationships, like a black book of connections that is said to be second to none. And many people have looked sceptically at some of these relationships with certain agents, but that's the way Arsenal looked to be favouring. Then came the overhaul, the restructure of the club, and that saw the recruitment department, in the words of some I've spoken to around the club, decimated. The likes of Francis Kajajal leaving the club, Brian McDermott too, and many more besides. While well, the full details behind Raul Sanlehi's departure from Arsenal still remain relatively vague, Arsenal released a statement pointing to the idea that it was part of their cost-cutting measures around the Covid crisis, that it was a role that they had decided wasn't necessarily essential and that it would be discontinued. But the lack of detail and also crucially the timing, because Raul Sanlehi was negotiating a number of potential transfers for Arsenal and the Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang contract, so this was the middle of the transfer window, 
led to suspicions that there could be other reasons. Now, we've heard so much speculation around Arsenal, around Raul Sanlehi, a lot of reporting about his relationships with certain high-profile agents and Arsenal conducting a lot of deals with the same agents. But we've got no reason to suspect there is any wrongdoing. We only have what Arsenal have announced. And until we maybe hear from him or more from the club, we won't know if there are any deeper reasons to it. We only know what we know. But it is a big moment for Arsenal, losing their head of football in the middle of the transfer window will not have been a decision taken lightly. Leaving by default, you could say, Edu at the top of the tree as technical director, in conjunction with Mikel Arteta, whose title has been changed from head coach to first team manager, and he will certainly have more power than ever before around recruitment. And then there are other individuals supporting as well, the likes of Ben Napper, the loans manager, then filtering down to the academy, somebody like Lee Heron heading up recruitment there, Per Mertesacker and other individuals. And it's really fascinating to look at the way that the academy has started recruiting over the last few months, picking up players who have perhaps fallen out of contract elsewhere. Will they start to look to go down the route that Chelsea have operated on in recent years, making it almost like a second business? Signing players, loaning them out, trying to develop the best ones, keep them in-house, then sell for profit those that they've bought in from cheap for cheap. That's an area to watch. But on the first team side, it's almost like Arsenal have winded back the clock, going from this continental model with a huge number of bodies, a huge number of cooks, you could say, to very few, almost like less is more. And they will hope that this is an intelligent way, a more modern way to go forward, and that it will lead them to success in the transfer market. Okay, Arsenal dropped to 11th in the Deloitte Money League uh, in the latest results, their lowest since 2001. Yeah, and here's an accompanying quote. Uh, there is nothing standing out, nothing driving things forward, and income has flatlined for five years. Right, so why did that happen? Probably the easiest answer to that question would be results. That's Matt Slater. He's the football investigations reporter for The Athletic, and he's about to explain how poor results impact income. A noticeable, appreciable drop in finishing positions in the Premier League, which means less bonus money, less less um, prize money from the Premier League, but most importantly, failure to qualify for the Champions League. And there's a huge drop off, even if you go very deep in the competition as they have in the Europa League, even if you go very deep in that competition, you know, you, you know, you're looking at you know, at least half um, drop off. So, you know, you could maybe earn 40, 45% of what a good run in the Champions League would bring you. So I think it's those, it's, it does, that's the main thing really. They, they have, you know, the results have dried up, they, they're not as consistent as they were, and that has had a big knock on the bottom line. Right, so generally club revenue breaks down into three categories, match day, broadcasting and commercial. The club's most recent results show that broadcasting income was down from 180 million to 170 million. Which is fairly insignificant and largely based on performance or more specifically finishing positions within the league and Europe. However, uh, commercial revenue has actually grown by about 10 million pounds this year. Which is funny because we started this by saying that they fell out of the top 11 uh, and uh, that makes it sound bad, Seb. Well, the club's growth isn't retracted 
acting. It's just not accelerating like they might want it to. Uh, with their commercial income, for example, they make a lot of money, but they are behind many of their peers. For example, uh, their kit manufacturers deal, they make 60 million pounds per season. And that puts them behind Manchester City, Man United, uh, Barcelona and Real Madrid and Liverpool, who've just signed a, an unusual deal with Nike, which we think, all things considered, will be worth around £100 million per season, which is almost double Arsenal's. Also, right, the, the market-leading deals that they have uh, are in the more minor areas. So the £30 million over three years deal with uh, Visit Rwanda is the best sleeve sponsor deal in the world at the, well, at the time that it was signed, but he's still only £10 million a year, right? Right, and match day income is also very interesting, largely because of their big, shiny stadium, and Matt explains why. One of the great sort of pillars of Arsenal's success as a club has been the Emirates building that stadium, a big stadium in London, having high ticket prices and having lots and lots of premium seats. I mean, that has been really Arsenal's big USP. You know, when they built that stadium, they were basically making about three million pounds a game, a home game, of which one million was coming from uh, about a sixth, seventh of the seats. So those premium seats and that, again, is, is, is one of the advantages that London clubs have, particularly if you are one of the best clubs in London. You can really just tap into that kind of corporate market. You know, the banks, uh, all the other large businesses will do so much hospitality, entertainment at big games. Um, and it's often sort of discussed that, that, that clubs elsewhere in the country you know, don't have that advantage, certainly couldn't sell eight, nine thousand premium tickets every game. Which sounds great and makes it sound like they should be running away with it. The building of the, of the Emirates was difficult. Why was it difficult? Building anything in London is difficult, and it got quite hairy. Um, at, uh, I mean, this is this is a this is a whole book in itself. Just how they how they managed that 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 move, how complicated it was, how Arsenal for a period got distracted. Um, they became a property company for a bit. Um, you know, the, the the decision makers at Arsenal were were. Were, were worrying about relocating people and um, selling flats and building waste incineration plants and dealing with the local government who were making all kinds of demands on them. A cardboard baler was installed in October 2007 to bale all the cardboard from the catering facilities, armory shop and programme sellers and to prepare it for collection by a recycling company, Seb. Okay, but that is called the Emirates is also very significant because a couple of years before the stadium opened, club signed that long-term deal and it wasn't particularly favourable. It was eight years of shirt sponsorship at £48 million and 50 years of naming rights at £42 million, so a total of £90 million. Matt explains why. They had to do those deals. They had to do them. They had to front load them. That was the key thing. So they went to the market in a, in a weak position. They, they didn't go to the market in a position of strength. We're one of the best two teams in the country. Uh, we're about to move into an amazing stadium. It was... Um, we need the money right now. And otherwise, this stadium is going to become uh, a millstone because we will have to borrow more money uh, and the interest rates will go up. It was the shirt sponsor deal that I, I think became a real bone of contention because it effectively, what was it, sort of six million a year at a time where, you know, United, who they were going head to head with, were getting 15-ish, Real Madrid 14, Bayern 13, 14. It's actually worse than that. Schalke, Dortmund, and even Spurs were ahead of them. Uh, 12 clubs in total were earning more from their kit deals at the time. But for a long time after the stadium was built, there was a lot of frustration that, that they'd undersold. They'd undersold these key assets, the front shirt and the name of the stadium. 
So, in 2010, in an AST survey revealed by Goal.com, um, it was estimated that these long commercial deals were actually costing the club somewhere in the regions of uh, somewhere in the region of 20 million pounds per season. But they were able to renegotiate. In 2012, it went to 150 million pounds for five years for shirt and stadium. So that was 30 million pounds a year. And as a result, in June 2013, Ivan Gazidis, at the time their chief executive, obviously. Um, announced hubristically that the club's era of austerity was over and that they were then in a position to compete for almost any player in the world. So Ozil and Sanchez, etc. Right, right, but it didn't last. If you're really good at football, all the other bits become so much easier. Um, and I think that's something that Liverpool, under Fenway, learned. You know, get the football products right. And then we can be really clever and smart with our commercial relationships and our kit manufacturing deal and everything else we want to do so I think that's it at Arsenal that's the story they 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 they, 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 they lost their way on the pitch but throughout this whole period right lots of Arsenal fans talked about the cash reserves the war chest in Arsenal's bank accounts even if the results on the pitch weren't right why weren't they spending this money if they had it one of the conditions of the borrowing of a bond, in particular, it's, it's, it's quite it's quite regulated. Um, there would have to have been sort of like a rainy day element to that. So, uh, you know, a provision of the bond would have been, well, you must at all times have a, an amount in your bank account just in case the world ends, um, so that we can always get our money back. And that has meant that's often I remember you know loads of times Arsenal have been talking about this war chest and we've got so much cash in the bank and fans getting really really frustrated. Well, the point is that that money, a lot of it, had to be held back, had to be retained just for the provisions, the terms of their bond, sorry. And by borrowing now from their owner, well, they can now tap into more of their cash, all of their cash, if you like. So, so that that's definitely a you know a cash positive for Arsenal. And so that's full circle, isn't it? Arsenal's debt has actually increased, but because it's mostly owed to Stan Kroenke himself, it's on more favourable interest terms than the bond agreement. And also, as Matt says, it eradicates the need for Arsenal to keep their rainy day fund, which theoretically means they can spend all that lovely cash. Not that they will. Yeah, that's great then. This bit's over now. I'm James McNicholas, and I'm an Arsenal correspondent for The Athletic. James, how did the perception of Stan Kroenke change over time? Well, it's interesting. I, I think Arsenal is an interesting club because they have an attitude to ownership. I think that's maybe a little bit different. Some of their Premier League contemporaries, Premier League rivals, you know, Chelsea are a very close club to Arsenal geographically, and there are sort of interesting differences between those the way those two clubs approach this situation. Arsenal adopted the kind of stadium model. They rebuilt the stadium, took considerable loans in order to do that and gambled that the revenues from that would sustain them in the 21st century. Chelsea, of course, went down the Abramovich route, the money route, and it, it consequently created a bit of a sort of cultural divide between those clubs. So I think when Arsenal started being bought out by any billionaire, didn't matter who it was, there was a bit of resistance there because Arsenal fans had kind of constructed a bit of an identity based around the idea of pride and doing things the Arsenal way, a really strong sense of tradition. The idea of an American coming in and owning the club felt alien. And I think, you know, certainly in London, certainly in England, there was a little bit of resistance to that. I think, to be honest, antipathy has grown, really. And that's because Stan Kroenke's ownership of Arsenal has coincided with a period in which the club's Premier League standing has largely declined. You know, he's not the kind of owner who 
puts his own cash into the club. He's not the kind of owner who is going to sort of lavish money on expensive signings. He's not a fan in any real sense. Um, it's difficult to sense a degree of allegiance between KSE, the Cronkies and him. And I, I think this came to a head in the summer of 2019 when Arsenal fans launched the We Care Do You campaign, which was basically a, a really public plea with Stan Kroenke and Josh Kroenke and KSE to kind of show something that I think it's almost impossible for them to do, which is an emotional, affectionate atta- attitude uh, towards the club and a connection towards the club. You know, that is not, they are not Arsenal fans. They were not born as Arsenal fans. They were not raised as Arsenal fans. It's inevitable, I think, that supporters are going to want that from an owner. But I don't know if it's necessarily realistic. Uh, and I think, you know, the, the, they care in so much as they want the business to succeed. They want their investment to be proved worthwhile. But, you know, they're never going to view it like a fan and I think that has always created a bit of distance between them and the supporters. What is the current composition of the board? So with Sir Chips and Ken Fry having stepped down, the board now currently comprises of Stan Kroenke, Josh Kroenke, Lord Harris of Peckham who's been there for some time now, his background's primarily in retail, and the recent appointment of Tim Lewis. Now Tim Lewis is a partner in Clifford Chance and he advised Stan Kroenke on his purchase of Arsenal at various different stages. He's a very, very trusted lieutenant of the Cronkies. Crucially, he's in London because we live in a post-COVID world now where travel is not as easy as it once was. Josh Cronkey was a very prominent figure at Arsenal in the first part of last season. Obviously, he can't be here. He can't have eyes on the ground. Tim Lewis provides that. And he's also been conducting, as far as we understand it, effectively a bit of a financial audit of the club to make sure they're as efficient as possible uh, in this very difficult economic landscape. You've described quite a range of characters within the boardroom. What are, um, what are as, a, as a group, what is its, um, how do its strengths and weaknesses relate to Mikel Arteta and his, his job performance on a day-to-day basis? It's really interesting because technically Mikel Arteta is reporting into the executive side, right? So he's working with Edu as a technical director. Previously, he was working into Rousseau as head of football. With Rousseau having been removed, the dynamic slightly shifts. Uh, and everything does have to go through the board, as in any business. Uh, but... How has he helped and not helped? I think maybe he's, he's not helped by the fact that there's not a great degree of football experience there. But I think he's helped by the fact that he actually does have quite a positive relationship with Josh Kroenke. And I think one of the things that come out of this summer is that Arteta and the ownership have kind of opened up a more direct line of communication. Personally, I think that's a really positive thing. It's interesting, at Arsenal, they had Arsene Wenger, who was kind of across everything, and that was seen as a bit of a negative. So Arsenal moved away from that. They appointed these multiple voices, Sven Mislintat, Rousseau, Edu Gaspar, some of which have come and gone. And they had a kind of head coach model under Emery. Arteta's back, and it looks like he's the manager again. It's fascinating how quickly Arsenal have kind of reversed and gone back to something more akin to what they're familiar with. Uh, And and maybe that makes up for a little bit of the, the lack of football experience on the board there, especially with Ken Fryer stepping down. So, but I think the one consistent thing we will see is that we're seeing Arteta's authority grow because I think everyone associated with Arsenal senses and intuits that he is the most positive thing around the club at the moment and that's where the power lies. Right then, so this is about the centre spot, isn't it? Does it, what does it, how does it feel being, being here? now that it's like this peaceful home nostalgic 
passion, uh, memories, good times, um, community, just everything rolled into one. They're all positive things. I thought there might be some sort of wistfulness. There was. I, I struggled to come back here in the first few years after the move. And I think probably like a lot of old fogies, I'd be lying if I didn't say that more or less any time walk over the bridge to the Emirates, there's something missing. You know, there's that, there's that uh, feeling of going to like a sacred place. And when I used to take the turning into the top end of Avenel Road, which is a bit of an incline, um, and you would see the crowd kind of mingling and gathering and growing and bubbling just outside the main entrance of the marble halls uh, and you know the smells and sights and sounds and colours and all of that kind of electricity just sparking it just every single time you know shivers down the spine gets you know that's like uh, fe you know feeling where your stomach's jumping um, and I can't replicate that yeah. to this day at the Emirates because this is always home. Nowadays, when you arrive at Arsenal Station, you always head in that direction, and that will take you to the Emirates. But up until 2006, it was always the case that you would head in that direction, to Highbury. Finances were always a huge driver behind the decision. Highbury held 38,000 fans. And in the final year, 2005-2006, the club made £44 million. Instantly, once they moved to the Emirates, they made 107% more in one season. It was clear they had to make the jump to a bigger arena. first time that Arsene Wenger actually came to an Arsenal match, um, way before he was manager, uh, he got a taxi from the airport and the taxi kind of dropped him out at one of these side streets and he went, turned around to the, to the driver and said, but where's the stadium? <laughs> and uh, the guy's like, oh, it's just here, mate. And Arsene said he just couldn't believe how brilliant it was to have in the middle of, you know, all these houses and, and just hustle and bustle of normal life, stadiums just... Of, of this magnitude and this beauty just suddenly appears almost like a a kind of old-fashioned brilliant UFO um, and uh, the beauty of it with the Art Deco exterior as well just has this, uh, something that I think is almost unique in world football and as a fan just coming you know if you'd arrive and you'd if you just walk down and turn into Avenel Road the road we're on now it's a little incline at the top the hill and you'd come down from the top and you would just see this gathering of you have people and fans and colour and noise and electricity all building and crescendoing in advance of the kickoff, And uh, it was just, you were walking towards like being drawn in like a magnet. You're coming down the hill, like sucked into this, 
sort of specialness that was right here, right outside the ground. I mean, the Emirates doesn't even have a kind of real proper entrance. I mean, to have an entrance like that was spectacular and um, really got you, got you going, you know, got all the, all the, all the sort of blood coursing through your system, excited about the game. And um, the other thing when I look at that that I remember is, of course, the dressing rooms were literally, you see the uh, marble halls with the, the old-fashioned streetlights outside and just the, on the other side of that, just above ground level, they, that was the dressing rooms. And on a, on a particularly momentous day, Ian Wright would literally be hanging out almost by his ankles, like, you know, cheering and singing songs with the fans and throwing stuff out. And after, you know, winning trophies and things like that, the scenes around here were immense. Um, you'd never want to go home. This was home. When you look around, do you see where you used to sit? Absolutely. Is that, do you, does, it, do you, does it flicker from what Absolutely. it is now to, to what it was then? Yeah. I mean, the clock end and, you know. For sure. Where I was mean, home for you? Uh, uh, various places over the years. So, I mean, I, I spent the best part of 30 years watching football here. So, first game was in the West Upper. Um, and then uh, a, lot, a lot in the North Bank where I sort of, you know, had my teenage years and, uh, um, you know, you felt that rite of passage of growing up on the terrace. And then uh, over to the clock end when they rebuilt the North Bank and made it all seater, the, t the, the, the clock end was where it was at. Yes. So I uh, had a brilliant time there where the f football was as good as it's ever been. And um, we had many, many happy memories. And of course, whenever I was working, it was the East Upper yeah. um, where the press box was. And uh, yeah, it was a, a truly magical, beautiful place. Um, and I'm very grateful that even though it's not the same, you can still feel its essence because of the fact that you're standing on a version of a, of a pitch size uh, set of, uh, you know, grass, and you've got the four stands and you've still very much got the, even the gaps in between the stands that were there before are the same. And the fact that you can still feel very much that sense of the Art Deco with the East and the West um, is, and there are bits of it that are, are, they've built, they've rebuilt around the original structure rather than mimicked it. And then you can little, see these little bits and it's like, that was actual real Highbury, yeah. which is fantastic. So you feel that connection still. When you talk about what it was like, there was a clear identity and there was a connection between the fans, the players, and the stadium. Has that been entirely lost by, by moving to the Emirates? And can you, can you understand why it just simply had to happen? Uh, I was a, a kind of stay at Highbury fundamentalist all along. And even though I knew that was a case of heart ruling the head, the head knew all along that at the time when Arsenal planned to move, it was the sensible and logical and practical and ambitious thing to do this place for all of its beauty and magic couldn't get that much bigger. You know, it's hemmed in by local houses and um, you can't go too much higher because you mess about with people's light and space and the neighbours quite rightly are entitled to say, no, you just can't build a, you know, 20 more million feet up in the air. Um, there was always issues about if you filled in the corners that the, the, the lack of sort of transference of air would, would wreck the pitch forever and that the ground staff were like, no, 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 we can't do that. And it just became also if you're trying to build 
something that already exists and build around it, it's really difficult compared to smashing something up and starting again from scratch. Any kind of builder or architect will tell you that. So I think in the end they didn't feel that staying was was possible. Um, and then came the, um, the, the where and what, and that was phenomenally tricky. Um, and it spent, it was a lot of years, I think the eventual paperwork of the um, documents that they had to run past Islington Council over for planning permission were like a thousand page documents, it was absolutely outrageously, uh, you know, a lifetime's work almost for people like Ken Fryer and, and, and Danny Fisman who were on the board who oversaw the move. And, um, you know, the stroke of luck was an Arsenal season ticket holder spotting on the A to Z, um, uh, 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 kids who don't know what an A to Z is before sat nav, you know, we actually had books with maps in it, that there was a, um, uh, this sort of what they call brownfield site, uh, a, a patch of land virtually next door. It was a, it was a really, it actually used to be the, the local rubbish tip and various other kind of industrial estate. wasn't wasn't the most salubrious part of the neighbourhood. Um, but it meant staying in the heartland, thank God, because the idea of, you know, upping sticks and leaving this neighbourhood and ending up, you know, with a journey to the M25 or, or Wembley or some other spot that didn't have a direct connection with the place that has become the club's home geographically, uh, that I think would have been l like multiplying the, the wrench of leaving Highbury and making it a million times worse. People still have their same routines, can go to the same pubs, can go to the same restaurants, can walk the same walks. And a lot of people who come to games make sure they come past here first, which is just like they are, it's like touching the, the magic yeah. stone before going off to, to the match. So that that's good that it's all still so close. You can see if you're in the Emirates, if you're in Highbury House now um, and in the offices and you look across, this is all you can see on the skyline is... The, you know the frontage of the west stand kind of more or less unchanged so you feel close to the to all the important things of the past Now we know that it was a special place to watch football but it is now a lovely place to live as you can see around me the gardens are beautiful and manicured and there are plenty of other things for the 650 flat residents that live here at the old stadium they've got a concierge they have underground parking they also have a nursery on site plus a gym to keep fit What is it like living in Highbury? Do you know what? It's funny you should say that because literally as Arsenal just won the FA Cup, it was amazing because the atmosphere when we went out on the pitch after they lifted the trophy was amazing. It's really good. I'm not an Arsenal fan, but my boyfriend who I live with is a gooner. He loves Arsenal. He's a season ticket holder. So for him, it's like the dream come true. I mean, for me, even not as an Arsenal fan, but as a football fan, 
you can kind of feel like you're a part of history living here and you can see with the red windows and all the features and yeah it's really great it's a great place to live no, when Arsenal won the FA Cup the other day, it was amazing. Yeah. Because obviously with it being like COVID now and all the pubs not yeah. being open, yeah. everyone was out on the pitch. Very good. Yeah. So it's cool. It's a cool place to live. Do you know what? It's a re I love it here. So yeah. Okay. And then if you want to go to the Emirates, you literally just walk, like, you'll see it. You just walk up that hill and it's there. I want to tell you what I talk to the lads about every day. What it means to be part of our family. Are you listening, bro? Yeah, listening. A strong family. That's, that's, that's mine. <laughs> First, there is the non-negotiables. Respect. Humility. Belief. And it's okay to get angry. To raise our voices. As long as it comes from the right place. And even though family can hurt us like nobody else, remember, they are the ones who raise us up. When people come to our house, try to divide us, because they know our family and what our shirt means. What else for life? What else for life? Let them know we can't be divided. And it will take all of us together. Because we know where we belong. So when the challenges come, 
you will tell them. This is family. 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 This is family.